you will, please. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him. They said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the power that it has to transform us from one degree of glory to the next because we are in Christ just as he is in you. We're thankful that we share in this union between you and your son and that in that we find eternal life and a security that none can snatch us from your hand. Lord, as we consider the matter of dedication this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would so incline our hearts to listen, not to puff up our minds with knowledge, but rather to bend our hearts to your will, to be set apart more fully this morning, perhaps, than we were when we woke up this morning, perhaps than we were at certain points in our week prior, where we as sheep so often go astray. Lord, would you call us back? May we, as we consider your word, hear your voice in your word and respond as your sheep. Grant your spirit and be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This being the second part of our consideration of Jesus as the good shepherd, it's important for us at the front of this to consider um, that the title is yet the same, Sanctuary and the Good Shepherd. This is a part two in many ways. But the setting of verse 22 is extremely important as we think about what Jesus says to his opponents. Look at it again with me, if you will. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. 
Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, we can tell from history that this Feast of Dedication was happening about three months later than the Feast of Booths that we talked about at length in chapters 7 and 8. And so some time has, has passed from chapters 7 and 8, but time has also passed from chapter 10, verse 21, to chapter 10, verse 22. Otherwise, why would John point it out right now? So Jesus has already spoken at length about how he is the good shepherd. He set out to encourage his disciples with this message, but also to speak to those who would try to shepherd his people for their own selfish reasons. Now, in verse 22, John gives us a marker, and as he gives us these date markers and time markers, we ought to take them very, very seriously. We don't see anything in this passage about what Jesus did in celebration of the Feast of Dedication, or as we call it today, Hanukkah. But we do see later on, and maybe you've already picked up on, what Jesus does in light of the context that he's in. So this just, again, as a moment to encourage slow and precise Bible study, which is probably the hardest way to study the Bible, isn't it? How many of us are just happy when we didn't skip our devotional time? in the morning, right? Don't have to raise your hands. Otherwise, I'd have to raise two hands and a foot. A lot of times we would like to just know that we've heard God's voice. And, and truly, there's power in that, isn't there? And, and I'm not advocating that true spirituality is only found in waking up four hours early to spend an exhaustive amount of time in God's word. And yet at the same time, you can see the effects when that happens, don't you? <laughs> I mean, I've never done it, but I'm sure it has really good effects. <laughs> I spent a lot of my week in studying God's word, of course, and, and even in the moment where I can slow down and say, okay, it's only Tuesday. We've got till Sunday. How quickly other things distract us. And how prone we are to wander in our minds and to wander on to the next thing and just kind of glaze over God's word. Now, that isn't the point of verse 22, but it's certainly the context we find ourselves when we read verses like, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. Okay, John, get on with it. This is why we like Mark, right? Immediately, he got into the boat. Immediately, he told his disciples. Immediately, immediately. I'm not going to tell you what's going on outside of this. You just need to hear what Jesus is doing, right? Mark is written um, to anyone and everyone who, was, who received Christ, but it seems that there's a special attention given to those people who are fast-paced thinkers, right? John is not like that. And it's important for us, even here, at really what is nearly the middle part of the Gospel of John, to remember that there is a human author with human tendencies and characteristics in his writing that God specifically assigned to this task of communicating the Gospel to us. Now, in light of verse 22, I want to give you a four-step outline to the passage today. The first one being a dedicated temple followed by a dedicated sheepfold, a dedicated shepherd, and then lastly, a dedicated mission. So if you want to write those down at all, dedicated temple, a dedicated sheepfold, a dedicated shepherd, and a dedicated mission. And yes, I did need to look at those to make sure I didn't mess them up. <laughs> but first of all, a dedicated temple. This is where Jesus is, right? Again, our outline comes from this verse 22, the setting of the Feast of Dedication. And again, this is... Uh, happening three months after the Feast of Booths. And this Feast of Dedication had a lot of overlap 
in people's minds um, as, as the popular opinion of these festivals goes. The Feast of Booths had a lot to do with water and light. You remember those were our themes as we looked at chapter 7 and 8 of John. And that theme of light continues on into the Feast of Dedication. And perhaps like me, you have a very limited understanding of Hanukkah. The one thing I know about Hanukkah in the first place is that there's lights, right? Um, it's, it's a festival of lights. It's a feast of lights. There's a, a very light-focused theme in Hanukkah. Well, beyond that, there's some historical context as well. We don't read about the establishment of the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah in the Bible because it wasn't established in any of the books of the Bible. Rather, in 167 BC, when the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes um, had invaded Jerusalem, he went straight to the temple and replaced the purpose of the temple of worshiping Yahweh with the purpose of worshiping Zeus. In light of that, Judas Maccabee and others who revolted with him went up against Antiochus and basically took the temple back and rededicated it, not to Zeus, but to the one true God, the Lord of Israel. This is a very exciting story. It is worth your study and homework to go over the history of Hanukkah and see why it is so emphasized even today in Jewish culture. But for our purposes today, this idea of rededicating the temple, and the, of course the title that we see in verse 22 of a feast of dedication, is most important for us in understanding what Jesus has to say. Again, Hanukkah was not established in the law of God, but it, seems, it seemed right to the Jewish community to say, we ought to celebrate this event, and it doesn't seem to be something that would dishonor God, so we should be free to do it. And Jesus, though he doesn't immediately address the Feast of Dedication, what he addresses his opponents with in the context of the Feast of Dedication is really, really interesting. And we'll just go ahead and look at that. If you'll zoom forward in John 10, what he says in his defense of who he is before his opponents, he says in verse 36, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I am the Son of God? He describes himself as the one who is consecrated or dedicated, dedicated for the purposes of the Lord. Now, if the Feast of Dedication has to do with dedicating the temple, you can see what Jesus is doing here, can't you? He's there in the context of this festival going on, and he says, the temple, yes, is dedicated to worship, but God has dedicated me to my people. As a what? A good shepherd. And of course, this teaching of the Good Shepherd is reiterated yet again in the beginning of this passage. But a dedicated temple, a dedicated purpose for worship, moving from the, booth, from the Feast of Booths to the Feast of Dedication, Jesus doesn't miss a beat in the opportunity to explain who he is without bluntly telling people who he really is. Hence the question, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, let me ask you, in our study of John, have you seen Jesus plainly tell people that he is the Christ? If you're thinking yes, then nod your head. If you're thinking no, then shake your head. If you don't know, keep staring blankly. The answer is yes, he has been pretty clear, right? Think of one of our favorites, of course, from earlier in the Gospel of John, the woman at the well. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah. How about just recently in John chapter 9, the man born blind? 
And Jesus says, do you believe in the Christ? And he says, tell me who he is so that I might believe. Jesus says, he is speaking to you. You have seen him and he is even speaking to you right now. I mean, that's pretty plain. That sounds almost riddle-ish, right? Like he's speaking to me now. No, he's talking about the person that's standing in front of him, right? So he's been plain about who he is, but he's never been plain about who he is in the context of a big group. He has revealed himself plainly to individuals. Individuals who would respond by faith as well. He has not been blatantly obvious in the way that they would like him to be with his opponents. Why? He says, I told you who I am, and you do not believe. Now, these are the religious leaders of the day. These are the shepherds of God's people, the teachers of God's people, the keepers of God's word. And so everything that he said about himself, um, particularly what we saw in the earlier part of chapter 10 about him being the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He being the one that in verse 17, the reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. That no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I received from my father. He's spoken very clearly about his mission and his intimacy with the father that he alone is the son of God in a unique way. So why is it that these smart people are asking him to be plain about who he really is? Easy question. Do they want him to be plain about who he is so that they might believe in him? Absolutely not. They have had opportunity and they have chosen not to believe. Jesus makes it plain. I told you and you don't believe. So what is their purpose? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. Escaped is a funny word there, isn't it? When we think of escape, we're thinking of somebody who has been in a place of trouble and has often narrowly or you know, at great odds has removed himself from that trouble. Jesus is at odds with no one. He's made it clear in different parts of the Gospel of John that he's not going to be taken until his hour truly comes. And so he can freely say whatever he wants to say, certainly by virtue of him being the Son of God, but in the human sense, he has perfect trust that his Father is not going to allow him to be taken until the time truly comes. But the time will come, and the time is getting closer. And this will be the last time that Jesus escapes capture from his enemies. A dedicated temple, a dedicated shepherd, a dedicated sheepfold, a dedicated mission, all of these headings for our passage today have already kind of been made clear to us in the first place. Jesus is not dedicated to those who, have, who will not trust him, who will not believe him. He's dedicated to his people. He's the one who lays down his life for his sheep. And the reason that he gives for why they don't believe is because, look at verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. <coughs> Excuse me. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So prerequisite to belief then would be belonging to the sheepfold of the good shepherd. How does one belong to the sheepfold of the good shepherd? Well, if we can mix metaphors and illustrations and and examples that Jesus has given us, we ought to go back to John 3, the simplest one. You must be what, he told to Nicodemus. 
born again. You need to be born from above. Nobody makes themselves a sheep. Nobody finally figures out and says, you know what, today I'm going to listen to a different voice. I'm going to change my shepherd today. We talked a little bit last week about how when sheep were moved from one flock to another, there was great turmoil and stress in the life of the sheep. They couldn't just immediately adjust and say, well, that looks like a human. He's probably got food for me. They didn't recognize his voice. They couldn't follow who they didn't know. And Christ, Jesus, in revealing himself to be the Christ, has addressed his identity publicly multiple times. It's worthwhile for us briefly to consider them again. First of all, in chapter 2, verse 19, he revealed himself at the Passover, again at the temple, during the season of Passover. And in his moment of cleansing the temple of all those that were selling doves and other sacrificial animals in the court of the Gentiles, where prayer was supposed to be had, he turns the tables over and he's asked, why are you doing these things? He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days, speaking of his own body. In chapter 5, verse 16, we see that the opposition against Jesus is centered on the matter of Sabbath. That Jesus would go and heal a man who was paralyzed on the Sabbath brought the opposition of saying, you must think that you're greater than God because you can break his law so easily. Rather than it saying that he was greater than God, though he, he called them to realize that he was actually equal with God, equal with the Father, and was able to do work on the Sabbath because of his relationship to the Father as his son. In chapter 6, that great chapter of the bread of life and him feeding 5,000 people, 5,000 plus, he presents himself as the bread of life and he faces opposition there yet again. These all being public signs and declarations, always being followed by a lack of belief. Chapter 7 and chapter 8, he calls himself living water. Or rather, he calls himself the one who, who can give living water. The one to whom one might find such living water that they would never thirst again. And then in chapter 8, he calls himself the light of the world. He says that just as this temple can light up Jerusalem, I light up the world with the truth of who I am and on the mission that God has sent me. And then, of course, in chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. And he says in verse 39... For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. They responded to him again, are we blind also? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So as a result of Jesus' ministry, judgment comes on those who claim to understand who God is and yet are far from him. Those who ultimately are not his sheep. So what does Jesus have left to reveal? Why is it that Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you really want to know, let's sit down and have a Bible study and I'll reiterate the things I've said. No, he's talking to people who aren't going to believe. And the shepherd of the sheep is the only one who can rightly look at someone and say, why should I tell you again? You don't believe. You're not my sheep. But amazingly, he doesn't just walk away from the conversation. They don't believe that he's the fulfillment of everything that came before, that all of the Old Testament, all the things of dedication to God are just as equally dedicated to Christ as well. For us then, finding sanctuary in the Good Shepherd requires that we too be set apart and fully dedicated, consecrated or sanctified, made wholly devoted to Christ. And if that attitude isn't present in a sheep, he's not the sheep of the Good Shepherd. 
just as these, his audience in chapter 10 are not. So we go from a dedicated temple to a dedicated sheepfold. What is it that keeps the sheep from being dedicated? Well, of course, Jesus makes it clear, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, can we know who is among the sheep of God? Not really. Uh, you kind of take your best guess every Sunday by coming here and assuming that there are sheep here, right? And I do the same. I mean, we assume, but again, we don't see golden halos over those who are truly the sheep of God. We see fruit in their life that might lead us to believe that they are the people of God. And rightfully so. We can't go around with an attitude of suspicion for every single Christian we come across. So when it comes to the matter of our own dedication, the problem that we face, the sin that we need to deal with, is the fact that some sheep, and especially some shepherds, some leaders in our culture, are not dedicated to Christ, but are self-dedicated. So it is possible to be a sheepfold, to be a, a sheep in a fold that is dedicated not to the good shepherd, but dedicated to themselves. Now, I grew up in the 90s, and one of my favorite movies to come back to has been Babe. Have you seen Babe? About the pig. We wanted to watch this with the girls a couple months ago, and the opening scene is terrifying because Babe is taken away from his family, and you know where all those other pigs are going, Right? And so, I mean, we had to fast forward, and I'm sitting here thinking, I don't remember this movie at all. I thought it was just a cute movie about a pig who shepherds the sheep, right? It's, you know, so anyway, just a little warning in case you're looking for a movie tonight. But in Babe, he's basically faced with two different modes of interacting with sheep. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, I don't know why. You really should. But Babe, as kind of adopted into this farm life, has attached himself to the sheepdog family and is learning how to shepherd sheep like a sheepdog, which is hilarious. And his mother sheepdog basically says, look, you need to show him who's in charge, these sheep, that is. You need to, be, you need to go and growl at them, maybe bite their legs a little bit. Show them who's in charge, and they'll listen to you and do whatever you want. That works for a sheepdog, doesn't it? You've seen, if you've seen it in person or you can look up on YouTube examples of how sheep respond to that kind of pressure. Well, of course, Babe, his biggest problem in trying to be a sheepdog is that he is, in fact, not a dog. He's a pig. Pigs are very different from dogs. And when pigs try to act like dogs, as one does, they find that they cannot. Their nature is very contrary to that. So in coming to the sheep and trying to coerce them into doing what he would like them to do, the sheep say, hey, look, if you want us to listen to you, why don't you learn to speak our language? If you could learn how to speak our language, if you could be nice to us, if you could give us an alternative to these sheep dogs that always want to bite us and growl at us, we would listen to you to do anything. You would even win sheep herding competitions in the end of the movie, spoiler alert. So Babe learns how to speak sheep, how to speak gently to the sheep. They listen to him because he's, he is condescending to their level. And it's a cute movie. Back to reality, though. It's showing us two very different ways that sheep are led. One, by coercion and by abuse of power and authority. And the other, by condescension and by a constant... Um, adhering to the sheep's standard rather than the shepherd's standard. 
And because of the reality, this is very obvious when it comes to leadership in our culture today, everybody's motives are always questioned. Why is it that that guy wanted to become a pastor? Why do you want to be a deacon? Why do you want to be an elder? Why do you want to be on the school board? What's your motive? What's your agenda? And the truth is we all have agendas, don't we? Especially when we come into leadership. What is it that makes us think things like, I'm going to run for city council or something like that? It's because there's something we want to do to change something, right? We have a purpose in mind. We have a goal. And in today's world, because we've seen power be abused and, and condescended so much in these ugly ways, everyone's motives are always questioned and questioned thoroughly. So questioned are everyone's motives that not only are we looking at things that you're saying now in recent history, but we want to get on Twitter and see what you might have said years ago that could set, off, set us off to decide to cancel you and be done. As I already mentioned, the matter of leadership within the church there's unfortunately too many church leaders who have been seeking a dedicated sheepfold, not to the shepherd, but that through the shepherd, they might gain something for themselves. So a lot of people come into churches on Sunday mornings with an attitude of suspicion. What's this guy really want? Is it just that he wants me to sit here and listen to him for way too long? Or is there something else that he has in mind? Is he trying to coerce me into something? And it's sad that so many have that mentality in the church context as they're asked to volunteer for something or be a part of something, or would you do these things that I would like you to do to help me accomplish this goal or that goal? It's sad that there's an attitude of suspicion in so many of our hearts, but at the same time, there's been too many reasons not to suppose that perhaps people might be abusing authority. Now, in the church, it's a little bit weird because we may not come in with an attitude of suspicion, but on the opposite end of that spectrum, we might come in with just an attitude of submission. And truly, you know, the Bible tells us to submit ourselves one to another. But if we take it to an extreme to where we just blindly say, hey, I'll do whatever the people at church tell me to do, well, we can certainly be in a place of danger there as well. You know, there's a lot of ways that church leaders, oh, I forgot the book, man. It would be really awkward if I went down to my chair and got the book, wouldn't it? Anyway, there's a lot of ways that church leaders, pastors, elders, deacons, committee leaders, whatever they might be, choose to abuse the power that they find themselves with. Um, the elders and I are reading this book called um, Redeeming Power and Authority in the Church. And one of the things that was brought up in it that is so interesting is that we could use our power in a spiritual context, even under the name of God, to draw people dedicated to ourselves and not to Christ himself. So some of the things that might be said by church leaders are important. You know, I think I've already kind of warned, don't throw around things like God told me or God showed me, right? Because that, that's a pretty heavy claim to make, um, particularly if it's something outside of God's word. But also that, that kind of phrasing of saying God told me or God wants me to do this, or those things can also be used to abuse the flock, right? So if you don't come to prayer meeting, you guys, God told me you're all going to hell. Now, that would be an eye roll on Sunday morning. But to a person who has entered into a church setting and says, all right, you're the spiritual authority. I'm going to do whatever it is that you say. Coercion is not hard to accomplish, 
God told me that if you don't take care of this thing, God told me that if you don't tithe more, that you shouldn't expect him to bless anything in your life. I'd like you to tithe more so I could get a Tesla. And then you would know every time you see me driving around in the Tesla that your life is richly blessed because you've richly blessed me. These things are not said blatantly from the pulpit by those who abuse their sheep in such a way, but their lives proclaim it very clearly. Talk, talking about this in today's context is very easy, and we might look back at the Pharisees and say, oh man, that was worse though, because Jesus was right there. Well, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that things will actually get worse in the last days. If you want to look there with me for a moment, that would be worth your time as well to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'll just read from verses 1 through 5. Paul, in writing to a young pastor, warns him, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Paul, of course, in 2 Timothy is already experiencing difficulty, so he's got to be referring to an increase in difficulty. For people will be, not that people already are at this time, but it will increase, people will be lovers of self, or for our purposes today, self-dedicated. They'll be lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Can you imagine all of that list that Paul just gave us under the guise of the appearance of godliness? How deceptive the enemy works through shepherds who are not true sheep to coerce and control those who blindly submit. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. I mean, this list is terrifying, but it gets worse again in, chapter, in verse 5. They have the appearance of godliness. You need to avoid such people. Just because they sound like, and they're using the lingo that sounds like words of the leader of our faith, of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is teaching us in John 10, if you go back to that, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Not just the words of Christ, but the voice of Christ is singled out here. That is to say that the method in which God's word is delivered can be known to be by God himself and not by another source. Increasing wickedness, though, in the last days makes it hard for even the sheep of God to hear the voice of their shepherd and to be able to discern when they do not hear the voice of their shepherd. So to whom are you dedicated this morning? Because perhaps the greater danger for you today is not that there are shepherds out there that would like to use you and your resources to their own ends, but there are also shepherds out there, and, and those ones that are self-motivated, self-dedicated, that is, um, but there are also other shepherds that would like to make you feel really good about your own self-dedication, to make you feel like it is right for you to let the world revolve around your plans, your agenda, your purposes. These Pharisees, of course, in their asking Jesus to tell them plainly who he is, We've already established it's not because they want to believe and follow him. Like the blind man said, do you also want to become his disciples? 
He asked that sarcastically. He knew that wasn't what they wanted. They want to stone him. They want to arrest him. They ultimately want to crucify him, and they will. But why? Because they need to get the shepherd away so that they can get to what? The sheep. They've lost the sheep in their own minds when Jesus comes on the scene and people start listening and believing as they do in the end of this chapter. Everything that he has to say, they're losing their position and their own self-dedication is at risk. Likewise, for those of us, whether in leadership or not, Christ does come as a threat to our own self-dedication, does he not? Yes, getting up early in the morning to study God's word is hard. Why? Because it wrecks my self-dedication. Because I would love for my alarm to go off, to look at my phone and say, 15 more minutes, baby, here we go. It's okay to sleep in sometimes, you guys. I'm not trying to put guilt on you. But if the pattern of our life, whether it be a matter of not getting up early or not taking the time in a different part of our day or not listening to the voice of our shepherd when he calls us to act, if there's a pattern in our life of ignoring the voice of the shepherd, it doesn't mean that it's possible for some sheep to just be those disobedient sheep that don't act the way they ought to. But what it would actually mean is that we are in this other camp of verse 26. You do not believe me because believing implies obeying and living in light of what the shepherd says. He says, you don't believe me or obey me because you're not among my sheep. This is a scary thing to preach on a Sunday morning. We don't want to consider the fact that we might not be among his sheep. And hopefully when you read that passage and you're hearing the voice of God, you might be convicted about the times that you have wandered. We, we've all been that reason that Jesus has left 99 of the rest of the guys to go get us. We've been that reason multiple times, even this past week, maybe even this morning already. It's worthwhile for us to consider where our hearts truly lie. And if we are those who are among the sheep of the good shepherd or not. This past week, you sent me to an amazing pastor's conference, and I'm so thankful for that, um, especially for this quote by this uh, Australian dude named John Woodhouse. He was uh, speaking from 2 Kings and talking about how those who reject the word of God make themselves fools. So I'm going to apply that here to this idea of revealing that in that foolishness, they do not belong to the sheepfold of Christ. So Woodhouse says, the simple, clear, direct word of God always seems unreasonable to proud people who have too high an opinion of themselves. This is what happened in 2 Kings, as he spoke of different kings that ultimately had too high an opinion of themselves and were unable to see the reasonableness of the simple, clear, direct word of God. So do you accept the simple, direct, clear word of God when you hear it? Or do you like to adjust it? Do you like to make it a little bit more complicated? I don't think the whole matter of selling everything that you own and following Jesus is as simple as he makes it sound. It was very simple for the rich young ruler, wasn't it? Here's your problem, guy. You love stuff more than you love me. And the only reason you're going to get over that is if you, have, if you sell everything you own, if you get rid of all that stuff, if you remove the temptation entirely. That's one of those passages that we say, well, he was just talking to that guy particularly, and we need to adjust it for, yeah, that's true. But at the heart of our, the depth of our hearts, we ought to recognize, I have the same problem that rich young ruler did. 
And I need not adjust the simple, clear, direct word of God, lest I be the one who is found to have too high an opinion of my own self and not be among the sheep of Christ. Well, Christ has a remedy for this, of course. The good shepherd, the one that we are meant to be dedicated to as a dedicated sheepfold, and to see all of the history of God in the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament as a matter of dedication to Christ. The shepherd that we follow, that we are called to be dedicated to, is dedicated to us. And that in the context, rather to say that he is dedicated for us. He is set apart for us. For the mission of God, yes, but what is the mission of God in the life of Christ? For him to lay down his life for his sheep. And yes, it is as radical as it was last week for us to consider a shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. Do you want to hear what Josh Hutchison told me? You do, I know you do. Because I asked him this as I was thinking for the sermon last, last week, thinking about this matter of laying down, his, laying down the shepherd's life for the sheep. So I asked him, would you lay down your life for your sheep? Because that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? He said... Not only would he not lay down his life for his sheep, but his goal would be to find the smallest sheep, to throw it as close to the wolf as he possibly can, to maximize his escape route so that he can get far away from danger. <laughs> and we would say he was right to do so. None of us would say that the life of a sheep is worth more than the life of a shepherd. But when Jesus says in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, He's talking about laying down his own life, giving his own life. The gospels are radically different and radically a contrary concept to our worldly minds, our own self-dedication. Jesus is the one who says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. How dedicated is Christ to his mission of saving his sheep? And how much we think that in our own self-dedication that we somehow affect the dedication of the shepherd towards his sheep. We don't. Jesus knew when he went to the cross exactly how you would act in response to it. He knew exactly the context that we would fail, all the challenges that we would find with that, and all the moments of self-dedication. And yet he still comes to these people who would like for him to lay down his life, yes, so that he can get out of their way. And Jesus' ultimate answer to self-dedicated sheep is his own self-denial. His unity with the Father in the mission that the Father has given him to go to the cross. John Milne, a really smart Bible commentator, says, Jesus is consecrated or dedicated to become the sanctuary in and through whom the living God may be approached and worshipped. The green pastures that Christ leads us to as our good shepherd is the very presence of his father. J.C. Ryle from the 1800s says that Jesus has a peculiar interest in his people because they belong to him. Problems and all, self-dedicated mindsets and everything that we bring, we belong to Christ. Ryle continues, they are the prize of his victory at the cross, the gift of his father, and by their own consent and heart submission, they belong to him. Christ will lose none of those he died for because A, he gives them eternal life. B, his father has given them to him and then C, he is united in mission with his father. That is the security that his sheep have. And in light of our own self-dedication and in light of the shepherds outside that would call us away from dedication to Christ, 
There is no one who can snatch us out of the hand of Jesus. There's a really funny story that John Piper tells of a woman after he preached this passage. A woman came up to him and said, you know, no one can snatch you out of his hand, but you can jump out. And I love, I love that Piper was stumped by this. Not, not in the sense that he didn't know how to answer, but that his answer was basically this, that if that's true, that undoes the whole weight of this passage. If I can jump out of the hand of Christ, what good is that security? No one can snatch them out of the hand of the shepherd. And that must include the sheep themselves. Because even when the sheep wanders, what does the shepherd do? Leaves the 99 to go and collect that sheep. And does he then take that sheep by the neck and say, wait till I figure out what I'm going to do with you when I bring you back to the fold? Puts it, <laughs> the farmer's nodding. Yes, that's exactly what the shepherd does. Because that's our worldly understanding of it. And he would be right to do so. Yet, when Jesus talks of the lost sheep, he says that the shepherd puts him on his shoulders, brings him home, and calls people to rejoice with him that he has found his lost sheep. And Josh would eventually get to that point of rejoicing, I'm sure. Thanks for being an illustration this week, brother. Be encouraged. If you are his sheep, you are secure in the radical dedication of the good shepherd. Dedicate your life to that shepherd, then. It's the only logical response, is it not? How can you look to one who laid down his life for you and when he calls you to dedication to him to say, uh, what else you got? What's in it for me? Christ says, I am in it for you. I am dedicated to you. Be dedicated to me. Well, the last part of this passage, and we, we skipped this whole thing of his quoting Psalm 86. I know that maybe you read that and you're like, what is he talking about? He's referring to a psalm in which the psalmist speaks of Israel receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And he says, basically, commentary I read that was most helpful with this, when Jesus says here, if you don't know what I'm talking about, verse 36, uh, verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then, oh, no, 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 that's not right. Verse 34, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? What he's talking about, basically, is saying that to the people of Israel, in coming into relationship with God as their shepherd, they are living as though they were gods compared to the rest of the world because they're in relationship with the one true God. If that's not enough to satisfy your curiosity, then please continue studying your Bibles. Anyhow, the last part of this, verses 40 and 41, a dedicated temple, a dedicated sheepfold, a dedicated shepherd, now a dedicated mission. This is the last time he's going to argue with these guys. This is the end of the road for the Pharisees to get an opportunity in public to hear from Jesus. He goes away in verse 40 to the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first. Did you all miss John the Baptist? He's dead now, but he's still being written about. Why? Many came to Jesus at the Jordan where John was baptizing, and they said this, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. After Jesus leaves, he escapes because it's not his hour. He goes back to where everything started. And it's fitting to consider that just as John was the forerunner for Christ, Christ would come back to where John was best known and confirm that everything that John said about him was true. John did no signs, but he testified to who Jesus is. You don't need to do signs as the sheepfold of Christ. You just need to tell people who the shepherd is. Point them to him, that they might be awakened to the truth of the good shepherd and find pasture with him. John Milne says of John the Baptist here that no greater testimonial to a witness could ever be penned. The purpose of his 
preaching and testifying to Christ would be to draw people to him. So, four little things to walk away with. First of all, question. What's the best way for you to spend your life for the Good Shepherd? Today, tomorrow, the next day. What is the best way for you to spend your life for the Good Shepherd? What has he equipped you with? What has he granted to you? What life circumstances do you find yourself in that would lead you to fruitful ministry and testimony to Christ? What in your life reveals dedication to following Christ? If, people, if you are a sheep of Christ, how are people going to know that? What will they see? What evidences exist? Secondly, for your own reflection, what in your life reveals self-dedication? Because none of us are those perfect sheep who don't wander. We're all that one out of the hundred that wander off. So what in your life might reveal self-dedication? Thirdly, which is fourthly, because I know I asked another question at the beginning, do you seriously consider spiritual leadership and the Bible in your life? I hope that you do. And I hope you don't come here to sit there while I stand here without seriously considering, considering biblical spiritual leadership and the Bible itself and considering whether these things are true or worthy. Lastly, is the objective of your worshiping Christ, is, is the objective of your worship Jesus or something which through him you might hope to gain access? Because that is what those false shepherds wanted. They wanted to get Jesus out of the way. He was in the way of something they wanted. And today, it doesn't look like trying to crucify Jesus all over again, but it does look like a manipulation of religion to access something through Jesus that they might find for their own benefit. So may we be, may we be cautious of our own motives and our own dedication, our own set-apartness for ourselves or for Christ. May they be for Christ in all things. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you so much that we can be your sheep through repentance and faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. That he has risen again proves that he has conquered death, that he has conquered sin, that he has made a way for us, and that we can be his forever. That no one can snatch us out of your hands is a great comfort for us this morning as we consider the temptations and trials that we face and that we will come to face in the week ahead. Lord, may we with confidence march forward in all the things that you call us to do, that we might bear testimony and that people might say, hey, Nick never did any miracles or any signs or anything, but everything he said about Jesus was true. Lord, may that be said of all of us who claim to be your sheep. May you receive the glory that you deserve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.